God has a plan. He so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, to take care of the problem of sin and death. But shortly after Jesus rose from the dead, he left. There were only a handful of disciples who knew the truth, and the whole world needed to hear the gospel and be transformed by its power. What could so few do? The secret to God's plan is that a disciple transformed by the love of Jesus is compelled to bear fruit and reproduce other disciples. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, a chain reaction produces exponential multiplication. Over the last few weeks, we saw God miraculously transform the life of Saul from one who persecuted and imprisoned Christians to one who preached boldly the name of Jesus. We followed Peter as he healed people and boldly preached the good news. What started in Jerusalem spread throughout all of Judea and even into Samaria. Who knows where it will go next? This is the book of Acts. Well, it's great to be with all of you this weekend. I got to tell you, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed the journey so far as I have had the privilege along with you guys to travel through the book of Acts. Uh, a, a lot of reasons to be enjoyed, certainly, but I think most of all, it's just because everything seems to be so exciting as we watch the advancement of the kingdom of God as the gospel worked, works its way uh, into the realities of culture and into the realities of the boundaries that seemed so impossible to overcome. And, and without a doubt from the beginning of stepping into the book of Acts, it just seems like it has been one story after the next of exciting advancement of the gospel and exciting advancement of the kingdom of God, really in many ways against all odds. And, and so I love that because it, 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 is, it is a visible expression of the continual promises of God unfolding. So I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, just think about how the book of Acts began, right? I mean, we, we're with Jesus right before he's ascends into heaven. Uh, he's gone through his whole journey. He's with a, a very, very small group of little followers that are with him. And he tells them, I am going to give you my mission. I'm going to give you my kingdom. I'm going to give you my power through the Holy Spirit. And you are going to advance forward into this world, into darkness, as ambassadors of me, carrying the redemptive reality into the world through the gospel. And you are going to watch the kingdom of God expand. That's where we began in the book of Acts. And it was an awesome idea. And then we got to see that idea begin to unfold. In Acts chapter 2, we're at the Pentecost experience where the Spirit of God comes. 3,000 come to know Jesus that day, 3,000 Jewish people. And we're just like, wow, that's incredible. And then there's this brief moment uh, in the story where they kind of settle in, devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the breaking of bread and the fellowship, and to the prayers. And then as that is happening, we see miracles unfolding as Peter and John begin to travel around. And, and move their way through Jerusalem. And it's just, wow, look at this. It's advancing. And it says, daily more were added to their number. Just over and over again, there is advancement. And then as we see a bit of persecution break out here and there, we kind of see God overcome with great speeches and before the Sanhedrin and Peter and John just seem to kind of like, you know, buzz right by it. They get put in prison. They're back out again. And you're like, man, God's overcoming persecution. And then we bump into Stephen and that's pretty awesome. And he's preaching to the Hellenists, the Greek speaking Jews, and then suddenly Stephen gets stoned. 
And we kind of stop in our tracks and we're like, wow, is this where everything turns and starts going badly? But that's not what happens. I mean, even in the death of Stephen, the gospel spills out of Jerusalem and starts going out to the ends of, of the known world at that point. We're like, wow, even in death, even in, in, in persecution, the gospel just weaves its way and advances and that's exciting. And then suddenly we're in Samaria and the Samaritans come to Jesus and they receive the Spirit and that's exciting. Who could have imagined that the Samaritans would not only be rescued but also restored to the purpose of being on mission for God? And we see the Samaritans move through Samaria and share the gospel with their fellow Samaritans, and that's exciting. And then uh, from there, suddenly we bump into Peter and, and, um, and, we, and, and Saul, and he's trying to chase down the church, and the great and mighty uh, overcoming of Saul and his conversion, and that's incredible and exciting. It's like anywhere the darkness is rearing its ugly head, the gospel comes in and just advances. And then Peter finds himself in the home of a Gentile, Cornelius, a centurion in Caesarea. He's preaching the gospel there after a vision God gave him and a vision God gave Cornelius, and suddenly the Gentiles hear the gospel, they come to know Jesus, the Spirit of God comes on the Gentiles, and we're like blown away. And it's just, man, it's just like, go, go, go. Fast-paced, unbelievable, exciting. It's like watching an action movie happening before your very eyes. There's no slow parts. It's just go. It's advancement. It's awesome. It's incredible. And then Peter goes back to the church in Jerusalem. He's like, the Gentiles know Jesus. The Gentiles have the Spirit. What were you doing talking to the Gentiles? Well, God gave me a vision. And then the church goes, this is incredible. Man, who knew that the gospel would advance its way into that territory. Let's worship God and rejoice. And that's kind of the book of Acts, man. It's just fun. Uh, a week and a half ago, or a week and a ago, I forget now, Brooke and I went on a spiritual retreat together unbelievable time and spend some time with God and with each other and we came off that spiritual retreat and I entered back into my home and my world and um, realized very quickly this week that as excited as I am about the book of Acts, my life feels nothing like the book of Acts. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, everything I just described is like gospel advancement, God overcoming, unbelievable things, bring on the darkness, it's gone. I get in my house and it's like, gospel, where is it? Jesus, where are you? No advancement, darkness advancing, death to the light. I mean, I'm like, this, this does not feel the same way. I'll tell you the primary difference. In many ways, this feels fast-paced, high mountain, exciting, advancement, miraculous experiences, and my house feels like a tedious, day-to-day, plodding along in the valley, trying to just make it to the next week, and feeling like there was some movement forward. And if there's any movement forward, two things go through my mind right away. Wow, that's amazing, and don't worry, it'll go backwards next week. I mean, like, like that's pretty much what it feels like a lot. And so i sort of wrestling with this idea that I'm very excited about the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is supposed to be our story. It's supposed to be what we should expect as we live out our lives, because remember, I've shared this before. All the books before the book of Acts are certainly for us, but they're not so much our story as much as God's story for us. But the book of Acts is now that God has affected his story for you, here's what you can expect your story is going to be as you advance 
forward in this now. This is what your story's gonna look like. And the book of Acts is that deal. So I'm looking at this going, God, I, I, I'm not sure I totally understand. Am I doing something wrong? Is there something missing? Is there something I'm not getting? Because my story feels like long years of tedious plotting and then a momentary, miraculous, unbelievable deal back to long years of tedious plotting. I don't feel like I'm in the book of Acts. And so I entered into the next part of the book of Acts, the next story, to see what next exciting and crazy, unbelievable thing's gonna happen. And this week, this week, as God seems to have a way to do, uh, before the beginning of time, as he was preparing the book of Acts for all of us, this week he knew right about where we would be. You're feeling a little out of place, feeling like the book of Acts is a little crazy, feeling like your life doesn't fit? Well, keep reading, because the story's not over. I'm not done telling you what you should expect. I'm not done telling you what missional life looks like. You gotta you got keep going, you gotta keep reading. So I wanna jump in because this story from this week was incredibly encouraging to me as I am wrestling through what the dynamic looks like between my plotting, tedious, day-to-day life and the book of Acts exciting, crazy, awesome, miracle life. Uh, even in the death there, it's awesome. And I've said it a couple of times, you know, bring on death, I'll take that, that's exciting. Put me on a cross and light me on fire so I can scream, I love Jesus. Don't just have my kids suck the life out of me over 10 years slowly. I don't want that one. I want the big death, going out like Stephen, baby, stone me. But this is horrible. And so, uh, in the book of Acts, what is it I'm missing? What is it I got? And then God went, just watch and listen, take a look. Let's turn to the book of Acts chapter 11, and I'll show you where we're going. Now, uh, as you probably know if you were here, it's on page 598, by the way, in our Bibles. As you probably know if you were here, uh, we, we were just in the part where Peter goes back to report to the church in Jerusalem. And so Luke, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is describing to us right now the move of the gospel into the Gentile world. This is a big deal. This was the barrier that was thought of as the impossible barrier to cross. The Gentiles were the enemy. They were unclean. They, they were people you stayed away from. And the the fact that the gospel's advancing into them, and not only that, but bringing them into the family, uh, grafting them in unbelievable, amazing stories. So what Luke's gonna do right now, just so you know, is that he's gonna continue the track of the story about the Gentiles and how the, the gospel is affecting the Gentiles, but he's gonna kind of run down that track for a little while, chronologically past where we're at in the big story, okay? So it's like we sometimes do when we're telling a story. We're telling this big story, and we get to the middle of the story, and there's a little rabbit trail we run on that's important, and the rabbit trail takes us chronologically past the big story, and then you get to this sentence. Well, before I get ahead of myself, let's go back to the big story. So actually, in chapter 12, the events in chapter 12 happen before the events we're about to experience, okay? In many ways, because what Luke's doing right now is saying, since we're on the Gentiles, since we're on that topic, I just wanna show you in the larger picture what the gospel was doing among the Gentiles and what God was doing as he was advancing his kingdom. So what Luke is gonna do now is he's gonna say this, while Peter was in uh, uh, Caesarea with Cornelius preaching the gospel to the Gentiles there, the family there, and then headed back to Jerusalem to report, while all that was happening in Israel, something else was happening 
happening outside of Israel that you ought to know about so that you can see what the gospel's doing there. So he says this in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So here's what we find out. What Luke's saying is, while this is all happening in Israel, the story we've been following along with Peter, some stuff is happening outside of Israel uh, in the northern region because of the scattering of the Jewish people that were down as part of the, uh, the, the persecution of Stephen. So let's just, let's just get a handle on this for a second. If you remember, there were a bunch of Jewish people that during the different centuries had been scattered out of Israel into the known world depending on uh, what uh, uh, empire was in power, currently the Roman Empire. And those Jewish people were called the diaspora. They were the dispersed, the Jewish people that had been dispersed out of their homeland. So many of their children were born into cities and places that were not in Israel or not Jerusalem or not Galilee or not those places. They were born in places like Antioch or places like Ephesus, places like Tarsus, places like Rome, places around the known world. And because they were born there, they learned to speak Greek growing up instead of speaking Hebrew. They probably had Hebrew as a second language, but Greek was their first and primary language. These were called the Hellenistic Jews or Greek-speaking Jews, and they came down to Jerusalem for the Passover. While they were at the Passover, Jesus and the story of Jesus emerged because he was crucified and rose again, and 3,000 Jewish people came to know Jesus, including a bunch of the dispersed Jewish people or the Greek-speaking Jews. They hung out in Jerusalem because now they're part of this brand new community of Christ followers and they're loving it. And then when Stephen was persecuted, what they decided to do was head back to their homes because Jerusalem became a hotspot for persecution and they thought, we'll just head back. So what Luke is saying here is that a bunch of the Jewish people had headed back to their homes in places like Phoenicia and Antioch and Cyprus. So Antioch is about 300, 320 miles north of Jerusalem. If you think of it this way, if this is the Mediterranean Sea and Israel and Jerusalem sits down here, if you travel up the coast of the Mediterranean, 300 miles, you get to Antioch. Right after Antioch, you're going to turn over the top of the sea. You're going to hit Tarsus. You're going to go around here. This is where Ephesus and some of those places are. Then you're going to cross over the top into Italy and hit Rome. So you've got that track going on. Once you leave that section of Israel, you're in Greek territory, man. So Luke begins by saying, a bunch of the Jewish people are now back in their cities. And he says this, they carried the gospel with them, but they were preaching primarily, no, 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 exclusively to the Jewish people in their cities that they went to. Just to give you an idea of why this makes sense, Antioch, which is the city we're gonna spend some time in now, was considered to be the third most significant city in all of the Roman Empire. Think about that. That's a big deal. Rome, Alexandria, Antioch. If you strategically wanted to take down Rome, those three cities were the big boys. Antioch sat on the trade route between Rome and Egypt. It was a big crossing point. It was a wealthy city. It was a very large city. As third largest in the entire Roman Empire, 500,000 people lived in Antioch during this time. That's half a million people. For us, that's not a huge city, man, but for this time, that is a giant city. In that city, in Antioch, there were 70,000 dispersed Jews. 70,000. So when the guys are getting back from Jerusalem, it wasn't like they were preaching to 12 Jewish people and done with it. 
They had their work cut out for us because the Jewish people in Antioch would have lived in community separate from the rest of the culture even though they grew up in Antioch. So kind of like you go to our big cities and you get little China or little Ethiopia or little this or little that and you go in there and the signs are in that language and the foods are that food and and it's almost like this little world. Man, in D.C. they have an Ethiopian world there. You go there, you're practically in Ethiopia, no doubt about it. I mean, the music they sell in the stores is Ethiopian music and so in many ways that's what this would have been like. The guys would have gone back not to Antioch, but to the Jewish section of Antioch, and they would have just been preaching the gospel to their brothers and sisters. They also had not gotten the memo from Jerusalem that the Spirit of God was for the Gentiles, right? So up to now, remember, they were scattered early on after Stephen's death, so they're up in Antioch assuming, like most Jews would have, that the gospel is currently for the Jewish people. They would not have assumed at this point that the Gentiles were part of the story. The Gentiles were still the enemy. So they're up in Antioch preaching to the Jewish people. No YouTube video has been uploaded for them, letting them know that Cornelius has come to Jesus, so they don't know this. And I love this next line. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Now Cyprus is an island off the coast of um, Antioch, so in that region, there were some of them who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. So I'd like to imagine that these are probably some of the young teenage men, right? They don't pay attention to the rules. They don't really pay attention to the normal structures. They live outside the box, gets them in lots of trouble, but also, man, makes them a powerful group of people. And these guys, whether they were teenagers or not, I don't know, but here's what I do know about them. They got to Antioch, they're Jewish, Greek speakers, and they get there and they're preaching the gospel to their Jewish friends and one of them's like, hey, should we go preach to that guy over there? I think he's Gentile, man. I I got you, but it's Jesus, let's go preach. And they went and preached to some Greek speakers, some some Gentiles. Now, the the word Hellenist here, which we applied to the Greek-speaking Jews before, remember that Hellenist simply means Greek speaker. Hellenist doesn't mean Gentile or Jew, so the Hellenistic Jews are the Greek-speaking Jews. The Hellenists in this context would be the Gentiles, the Greek-speaking Antioch Gentile pagans, okay? And these guys start preaching the gospel to them. Now this is happening without them realizing that Peter had been given the vision and gone to Cornelius' house. This is a big deal that they're doing this. This breaks every boundary. And I love that God shows us here that the gospel, while it's moving in Jerusalem and into Caesarea and into the Gentile world, it's not just going from an epicenter out. Wherever the gospel seems to land is an epicenter. And it does the same thing there all the time. Now watch this. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A bunch of Gentile pagans come to believe in Jesus, and not just a family in a house in in, uh, Caesarea. This is a large, large group, probably thousands of them coming to know Jesus like was happening in Jerusalem. So suddenly you have this brand new group of people that are following Jesus, but they they are Gentiles from Antioch. Now this is a big deal too, because listen, The Gentiles that were in Caesarea or in Jerusalem, like for instance Cornelius, they had lived for a long time in the land of the Jews. So they understood and knew the life cycle of a Jewish person, the religious rhythms of a Jewish person. They understood the God of the Jews on some level. And some of them had become devout followers of that God like Cornelius. So there is a foundation laid underneath the Gentiles that are in uh, Israel. But these Gentiles don't live in Jewish territory. 
So as far as they're concerned, the Jewish minority that lives in their city is kind of a weird bunch. They worship a snake with nine heads. You understand? I mean, their world was completely different. They had never read the Bible. They didn't know uh, what God was like. They'd never read the Ten Commandments. They didn't understand God's love for us, God's redemptive story. They didn't understand the Messiah. This is brand new to them. And so these guys have all come to Jesus, and it's like, okay, what do we do with a bunch of Gentiles that know nothing about Jesus, except for the gospel we just preached to them? So they send word down to the, uh, the church in Jerusalem, the circumcised party, and they get down there, and I can just imagine being in Jerusalem, how weird this time must have been, because they just heard from Peter, right? This is happening kind of in a similar time frame. Peter's just been down there sh- recently, and they just found out the Spirit of God's going to the Gentiles, and now guys from Antioch are coming down going, no, no, we're not talking about devotion men who are Gentiles here in Caesarea. We're talking about pagan worshipers of nine-head snake people up in Antioch that worship in the temples there. They've come to Jesus too. So the church in Jerusalem goes, what do we do with this man? So they pick one of their leaders in the church that they respect, that they know is full of the spirit, that's discerning, that's encouraging, that's wise. And they say, would you go up to Antioch and see what on earth is going on there? So we can kind of get a handle on what to do next, right? So they send Barnabas up there. Take a look. It says, verse 22, the report of this work in Antioch came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, 300 miles up north. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. This is a beautiful moment for the church's story unfolding because Barnabas gets to Antioch, and remember, his job is to discern if this work is legitimate, and then to kind of decide, what do we do with these Gentiles, man? I mean, they don't know anything. What do we do with them? Do we stick them in a corner and shelve them for a while until we can figure out what to do with them? Barnabas gets there. He looks at this great work that's happening, and he goes, this is unbelievable. God is working here. This is awesome. And you know what he does? He tells the Gentiles. He exhorts them. He encourages them. He says, man, you guys are with us. You guys are part of the team. You guys have the Holy Spirit. So let's get together. Let's, let's put our arms around each other. Let's get out into the city and let's go preach the gospel. You see, he immediately assumes they're part of the story. Can you imagine how that must have felt for the Gentiles? Like suddenly these Jewish people that would absolutely vehemently reject us are going, brother, brother, this is awesome. Stay the faith, stay the course, live on mission. This is incredible. I can imagine the speeches Barnabas must have given those guys. And here's the result, right? Barnabas encourages them, tells them he's behind them, authenticates the work of God, and it says this, and a great many people were added to the Lord. See, as soon as the gospel was released in the Gentiles in Antioch, the Gentiles started going preaching the gospel to their Gentile friends. And suddenly, just all these Gentiles were coming to Jesus left and right. So Barnabas, being incredibly wise, he's looking at this mess that's emerging. Let me just be honest. I mean, a bunch of Gentiles are coming to Jesus. If you know anything about the Jewish culture, that equals mess. You're just like, oh my gosh, this is going to get ugly, and it's going to get ugly fast. Because these people have no idea what it means to follow Jesus. All they know is that Jesus came, died, and rose again, and that they're saved. That's it. That's all they have. They have no idea what it means to be devoted to God. Jewish people do, but these guys don't. So what do we do with them? So Barnabas, he goes, oh my gosh, I need somebody 
that has the guts to come into an environment like this that can jump in and deal with these people and, and align them into a devoted life to God and that can speak Greek really well and that knows the scriptures incredibly well and can weave the Greek story into the, the Jewish story and use the scriptures to unpack the gospel and draw people into a devoted life with Jesus. Who is that gonna be? And Barnabas goes, dude, wait for it. Just recently, Saul of Tarsus was converted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. This guy was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows the scriptures inside and out. He's a Greek speaker from Tarsus, which is north of Antioch, and he is a gutsy dude, man. He was killing Christians, right? So, I mean, you couldn't pick a better man, and hey, wait for it. Tarsus is just north of Antioch. Why travel 300 miles down to Jerusalem when I can shoot up to Tarsus and go find Saul? Because what Saul had done is after the conversion in Damascus, Saul had traveled back up to Tarsus to spend some years there being discipled. We're about uh, AD 44 right now, going into AD 45. Paul is up in, I mean, Saul is up in Tarsus, Barnabas is in Antioch, and he needs a gutsy dude that can speak Greek and knows the scriptures. So he heads up to Tarsus to go and find Paul. By the way, if you hear me say Tardis at any point, which I've done several times this weekend and a while ago, uh, it's because I have Doctor Who on my mind, um, and Doctor Who's time machine is called the Tardis, which is very confusing to me. The Tarsus and Tardis are the same thing. And yesterday was the 50th anniversary for Doctor Who, and I'm a Doctor Who fan, so just ignore Tardis if you ever hear that, and just know I'm saying Tarsus uh, about, about Paul. I got text this weekend again about it. So here's the deal, right? So Barnabas went up to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So he brings Saul down to Antioch, and he goes, Saul, dude, I need you down in Antioch. Bunch of Gentiles coming to Jesus. They don't know anything about the scriptures. They don't know anything about God. Could you come down? And you can imagine if it was our world, our culture, here's how it would play. Saul, look, I know you got a lot going on. Could you shoot down, do a four or five day conference down in, Tar down in, in Antioch? We'll, we'll blast it around the, uh, uh, the, the, the media centers. We'll get everybody We'll print a book that can take notes. And if you could do like five days on basic discipleship and moving forward, that would work. And that's kind of what you expect. Saul's coming down to Antioch for a little while, hang with the disbelievers, do a couple big speeches, and move on. But this is what Luke writes. Take a look. This is an incredible sentence. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. For a whole year. I mean, we are in the height of the movement of the gospel. We are in the fastest, most amazing part of the advancement of the gospel. It's like go, go, go. It's momentum at its greatest potential. What you don't do when you got that kind of momentum is settle in and go, let's, let's take a year, stop right here in Antioch and just kind of work with the people. That's crazy, man. That is a waste of an opportunity if you look at it from one perspective. But here's what God did. He brought Saul and Barnabas down to Antioch and he sits them down and he goes, here for the next year, we're just, we're just gonna deal with the Gentiles and kind of get them up to speed. It is a long, tedious discipleship process. Now look, can I, can I just be clear about something? Uh, don't think for a second that this year was this beautiful, rosy year for Saul and Barnabas. I know better than that, and, and if we know anything about the Jews and the Gentiles, we ought to know better than that. 
The Gentiles were a crazy bunch of people that had idols up the wazoo in their hearts. They had a bunch of crazy ideas from years of worshiping all sorts of gods and all sorts of temples with all sorts of rites and things that were terrible to think about. They had a history. They did not grow up in a Jewish or Christian home. These are, these, you know, like, have you ever heard about Jesus? No, 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 never heard that word before. That's who we're dealing with here. So if you think for one second that after the gospel and the spirit came to them, it was just like miraculous transformation, all the idols are gone, all the ideas have changed, they know the scriptures inside and out, you have no idea what these guys walked into. They walked into a mess, a big church with a bunch of brand new Jesus-saved people who know nothing about Jesus. That's what they walked into. And they had to sit down and they had to begin day after day working to pour the realities of Christ into these people. I can imagine, man, Paul must have had some days, Saul at this point, and Barnabas coming back, you know, day 37. Okay, guys, we're gonna start in, 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 uh, in the book of Samuel. Excuse me, who created the world again? For real? I mean, for real? Was it uh, Atreus? Okay, okay. Back to Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, can you get this? Or you get there and some Gentiles doing something again. What temple did you go to yesterday? Are you kidding me? Well, I, I, I wanted to worship God, so I thought I'd go there. No, the nine-headed snake, no longer okay. I mean, this was a long, tedious journey for Saul. If I die and I get to meet Saul in heaven and I go, Saul, first year, Antioch, discipleship, how was it? If Saul goes, man, it was a, it was a, a cakewalk, man. It was unbelievable. I'm going to be totally surprised. I think Paul's going to say, I'd rather, I'd rather not talk about that year. I'd rather not. This is heaven. We shouldn't talk about stuff like that. See, I, I think that was a very difficult year because Luke even, you know, I, can you imagine Luke sitting with Paul? T tell me about the year in, in, um, in Antioch. Well, uh, we were doing a lot of learning every day. Okay, well, what did God do? Well, we did a lot of learning. What about like three weeks in? We're still learning. What about week, week seven, learning? Month nine, learning. You know what, I'm just gonna go ahead and put, they spent a year in Antioch teaching the people because there's nothing exciting here. See, a lot of times when we find ourselves in the valley of discipleship, just tediously pouring into the hearts of those who know Jesus but don't know Jesus yet, who have received the realities of Christ but don't know what it means to follow Christ, now that work is no fun. It's hard, it's tedious, it's messy, and it comes with more backwards movement than forwards movement. And when we're sitting in that place, sometimes it feels like we're getting nowhere. Because working through the human heart when it has been tainted by the cultures and religions and realities and demonic powers around it, just because Jesus rescues that heart doesn't mean there's a lot of work that still doesn't need to be done. We know this. And suddenly we're sitting in the story of Acts, this fast-moving, incredibly high-paced movement of the gospel, and everything stops in Antioch, and it's like, and for a year, they just worked with the crazy Gentiles. And then the next sentence is to me the most beautiful sentence of all. And it says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's an unbelievable statement. They were called the way before this. 
sort of a name they gave themselves. But you know what Christian means? It means follower of Christ or follower of Jesus, right? So a Christ follower is a Christian, all right? And the first place we were given the name Christ followers wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't in, in, in Caesarea. It wasn't even in Israel, for crying out loud. It was in Antioch, the third largest, most significant Roman city that they had. And it was in among a bunch of Gentiles. The first Christian wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. The first time they said, these guys are Christ followers, it was speaking about a bunch of Gentile pagan crazies who had spent a year getting to know what it meant to follow Jesus. And it dawned on me right there, man. I was reading the story and I'm like, you know what God is saying? See, we want our story to be this exciting, crazy blast of a story where thousands are coming to know Jesus every five seconds. We go to work, we say, Jesus, instead of getting fired, we have 12 people come to Jesus, including our boss. And we're like, oh, the gospel's on the move. That's what we want, but God goes, no, read the story, man. You know where the hard work is done? You know where, the, where the, the, the weeding through the junk inside the human heart is done? It's done in the valley of discipleship, in the tedious day-to-day workings of pouring the gospel into someone who doesn't want to hear it, doesn't want to live it, doesn't want to believe it, and you're going, come on, and they push back, come on, and they push back. You know Jesus, sure I do, but that's crazy. And that's where, that's where in that valley, in that fire, Human beings emerge to be called this. You ready? Christ followers. When we are rescued by the gospel of Jesus, we are not a Christ follower yet. We are just a redeemed human being. And yes, we get heaven. That's awesome. That's a big deal. I get it. But don't say that we're a Christ follower yet because a Christ follower is someone who has not only been rescued by Jesus, but has come to understand the incredible privilege of giving their life away for the sake of Christ and come to understand the rhythms that keep them in step with the Spirit, the devotional and missional life working together as we run hard for Jesus. That's a Christ follower, and you don't become a Christ follower until you've gone through a long valley of discipleship. And suddenly, right there, God whispers to my heart and to our hearts, the missional life has a few exciting moments and a lot of years of plodding along to disciple the hearts of people. Your home is a long plodding, but born out of that home will come little Christ followers if you stay the course and keep plodding along. That's mission, man. That's the missional life. I was at the airport this weekend welcoming home another family that has adopted three children from the Ukraine. I know, it's an epidemic around here. And um, three beautiful girls from the Ukraine, uh, you know, sort of in their um, uh, early teens down to like, you know, six or something like that. So older kids, and they have three biological children as well that are kind of in that age group as well. And we're at the airport, and there are three biological children with us, and there's a big crowd. And I've done this nine or ten times now, you know, being at the airport, welcoming another adoptive family. used to be so exciting. And um, 
uh, we're standing there and, and the biological children are here and we're waiting for the, the new three children with the two parents to come around the corner and one of my friends next to me, they go, is this like deja vu for you? And without thinking, I should have thought it through first. I really need to keep my words in check because I'm a little skeptical about the whole experience right now. And so I turn to her and I'm like, no, no, not really. All I can think about is, the fire that those three poor adopted children are about to walk into and the horror that these three poor biological children are about to experience and the death that's gonna enter in as these two worlds collide. And she looks at me and I look at her and I go, but I gotta say, it's very redemptive. <laughs> so it didn't go so well. So then I said, hold on, let me explain what I'm saying before you become complete, because they're in the process of adopting too, and I'm like, wait, wait, stop. She's like, how far am I into the process? And so I go, listen, here's the deal. There is no more beautiful expression of the redemptive work of Jesus tangibly demonstrated on planet Earth that I've ever experienced than the work of adoption. Seeing two worlds collide that don't belong together, shouldn't work together, becoming one world as the church collided with the Gentiles, the Jews, the Samaritans, becoming one because of the great work of the supernatural God that we serve. It's incredible, orphans brought into a family, that's us, right? So it is beautiful, but all I was trying to say was this moment at the airport, this is a beautiful moment. This is exciting. 3,000 come to Jesus, hug, hug, picture, picture. But when we leave the airport, it starts getting harder. And in six months, it's very hard. And in a year, it's dead. And then in, in 18 months, you go, that's a finger twitching. Oh my gosh, there's still life here. And then slowly you move back. And I'm like, it's a long road, man. And if I wish someone had told me anything, because I knew adoption was hard, don't get me wrong, but I wish at the airport someone just said to me, listen, we'll pray for you for 24 months, then you'll breathe again. It would have been helpful. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, man, here's the thing. The high moments of great miraculous wonder, seeing a family emerge for the first time and taking that beautiful family picture, they are beautiful. They are extraordinary. They are the gospel and they are miraculous. But the rhythm of missional life actually functions this way when we start understanding scripture. You start lost. Then you come to know Jesus as savior as somebody beautifully shares the reality of redemption with you through the gospel in demonstrating it and declaring it to you. Then you don't know squat, so you need some prep time. The church in Jerusalem needed it, they came to Jesus, and then they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread and the prayers. It, it, it was a while, it was lingering in community. The church in Antioch needed it. Saul, Paul, the guy that wrote, writes most of the New Testament, he needed it. After he came to Jesus, he went and got discipled in multiple places, including Tarsus. You ready for this? Jesus demonstrated it to us. Think about Jesus' life. I mean, it's an exciting life. Don't get me wrong, right? The birth, wow. Angels, stars, wise men, shepherds, a virgin. I mean, there's some pretty cool stuff at the birth. I mean, oh, donkeys, cows. We, we make little mangers out of it. It was exciting, at least to those of us that got a glimpse into it. And then what happens after the birth? I mean, there's a few little incidences. He heads off to Egypt, we hear nothing. And then we linger, linger, linger. Is Jesus still on planet Earth? Maybe he just went, no, this is not worth it, man, and took off. And then at 12 years old, he's in the temple, he's in the temple, he's back. No, he's not, that's just a blink of an eye. We meet him in the temple for a second when he's 12 and he's gone again. The next time we bump into Jesus, he's 30, 30 years old. 
The baptism, pretty miraculous. Then the temptation, pretty miraculous. Then going to Nazareth and, and, and the miracle, miracles that begin to be born, pretty miraculous. And then, then three years, he walks with a bunch of guys and teaches them frustrating things over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then there's the big death and resurrection. That's pretty exciting. But most of Jesus' life was so unexciting, we didn't write about it. When we interviewed, okay, tell, tell me, uh, 14, I built a table. 16, built a chair. 18, built a table. 20, built another chair. See, so much of the missional life is long years of tedious preparation and then miraculous movement of the gospel and then long years of tedious discipleship. So if you are on the front end of that story, you need long years of tedious preparation while living on mission, but still, and then if you're on the back end of that story, you're a missional person now, you, you know Jesus, you're a Christian, a Christ follower, expect that much of your life on mission is gonna be a day-to-day plodding through, pouring your heart into a bunch of people that don't wanna grow, because that's you, that's me. I don't wanna grow either. Jesus, make me like you. Just don't touch that idol. No, not that way, that's an affliction. I want like happy stuff. What are you talking about? You can't take that from me. I need that. See, we want to be like Jesus. We just don't want him to actually grow us. And so what can we expect when we're pouring ourselves into other human beings? They want to be like Jesus too. They just don't want to grow either. And that's much of our life. That's much of our work. I love that the story doesn't quite end there. It gives us a glimmer here to realize that while we are in the valley of discipleship, pouring ourselves tediously into other human beings to see them emerge as Christ followers, he says this. Now, verse 27, in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus, I want to name my next kid Agabus. Agabus. I can say that because I have eight children, so the likelihood of having a kid and naming him Agabus is very, very slim because that would be kid number nine. That'd be insane. So um, Agabus. But I do like that name. That's a cool name. Um, Named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So here's the deal. Um, While the church in Antioch is settled in to the tedious process of learning and teaching the Gentiles how to live for Jesus, and Gentiles are crazy, and so they're like, oh my gosh, these people will never learn, that whole deal, Uh, God sends some prophets up to Antioch from Jerusalem, right? And the prophets tell them, listen, there's a famine coming to the land all over the land. Now, during the reign of Claudius, uh, during his particular reign, in the years between 45 AD and 47 AD, through historical documentation, we know that there were famines all over the known uh, Roman world, especially in that region of Ephesus, Antioch, down to Jerusalem. They happened in pockets over a two-year period where rain was scarce, and so before that happens, already God is warning his people, here's what's going to happen, so get yourselves ready to care for one another. You see, while we are sitting in the middle of the valley of tedious discipleship, we should not simply keep our heads down and stay there. We gotta pop up every now and then and go, what's going on in the rest of the kingdom? Because it matters, because when you're in the tedious valley of death, I mean discipleship, sorry, did I say death? Uh, Discipleship, um, what what you're doing there is you're feeling the the weight of forward, backward, forward, backward. It doesn't feel like advancement because it takes so long. 
And so to remember that the gospel is alive and God is not dead, you need to kind of go, what's happening in the rest of the world? See, if I could, if I had the luxury right now of taking the 20 greatest stories on our planet this last week that God was affecting, it would blow your minds what God is doing around the world. I mean, if I could go to China and then jump over to Indonesia and shoot down to Brazil and uh, cut into some city here in America where there's a, a revival being born and jump over to Africa and show you what's going on there, you'd go, God is alive. The gospel is advancing. That's incredible. The problem is when you go home, it doesn't feel that way. But God says, listen, there's a lot going on and you're part of a much bigger picture than your little church in Antioch or your little home where you're plugging along trying to get these pagan crazies to love Jesus. There's a lot going on and you need to remember that and not only remember that, but be part of it. It's exciting to get involved in some bigger things and so it's important when we are in the process of settling into either being prepared for mission or being missional by preparing somebody else or our children or someone discipling that we're constantly kind of going, where else can I just plug and play for a minute and just help out? Look, look what happens. The church here in Antioch, while they're being disciples, it says this, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea and they did so sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So the church in Antioch while being discipled by Saul and Barnabas find out that there's some social justice issues going on and social poverty issues going on and famine going on so like we should collect some stuff we have right now. We're in the middle of learning but one of the ways we learn is we step out on mission. We do something. And so they sent some stuff down to the church down in Jerusalem and we catch two little things in this verse that I could spend the next 45 minutes preaching about. It says they took the stuff to the elders of the church. This is a beautiful moment in the life of the church. So much is happening in this verse, man. So we find out, one, that the church is becoming one church now, right? The Gentiles in Antioch are sending supplies to the Jews in Judea. I mean, what? That's insane, that's so awesome. The church is one church. And two, God is establishing the shepherds of the church to shepherd the people well through the elders because he realizes as the gospel is expanding, the 12 apostles can't do this. So suddenly you have localized shepherds called elders at each congregation as they're sending supplies and they know how this works. You don't go show up and say, well this is what we think you need. You go to the elders and say, here's what we have distributed as you see fit because you know your people. That's beautiful, man. This is gonna be foundational to the church's future. And it's happening here in this little story about Antioch. That's why the story is so stinking cool. And guess what else? Saul and Barnabas, they travel down to Judea to take a bunch of stuff down to help a church out there because of a famine. This begins a, a, a process for Saul and Barnabas that's gonna turn into the greatest church planting movement the planet has ever seen. I mean, Saul and Barnabas are gonna travel the known world planting churches all over the place and then he's gonna become Paul and it's gonna change everything. And you know where it began? I never knew this. The first time Saul and Barnabas traveled together it was for some social justice. I love that story. They didn't go plant a church in Judea. They didn't go because they're like, great call from God, go preach the gospel. The church needed help, so they took some supplies and headed down there. You see what happens when we choose to step out of our valley of discipleship and plodding and struggle every now and then and go, what, what can the body use? Cool, I'll jump in there. Then suddenly, bam, it expands into another miraculous story that we're not part of, but that we are part of. And so, we are reminded in this story, if you wanna live on mission, some moments of incredible, miraculous excitement. Miracles and martyrdom, right? 
If you're going to die on mission, man, it's going to be on a cross and going down in flames. Yeah, kill me. I love Jesus. Sounds awesome to me. I'm sorry. I want to die a martyr. But anyways, that's another story. And so, or it's going to be the miracles of the advancement of the gospel. Those are awesome things to be part of. And if you're living on mission regularly, you'll see some of that. But don't think that because the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts were pretty exciting that you're missing out because your life is a daily plodding along of pouring into your children or pouring into those God has given you to disciple or care over or shepherd over or watch over or care for. Don't think that your life is any less exciting, any less important, or somehow misses the story in the book of Acts because the book of Acts reminds us that the cycle of mission is a few exciting moments with years of plodding along in the valley of discipleship where growth takes place. And remember this, they were not not first called Christ followers when they came to know Jesus in the big exciting moment. They were called Christ followers when they were born out of the valley of discipleship. That home that I live in, it's rough and it's crazy and it's plodding, and it's day-to-day, and it's backwards movement, sometimes more than forwards movement. And coming back off our retreat, I was like, oh my gosh, we got so far to go. Standing at the airport, I'm like, I'm so sorry for all of you. (laughs) And then I was reminded, I was reminded. I've been praying since the birth of my first child 14 years ago that she would be more concerned about following Jesus than the tag that is inside her shirt or the boy she has a crush on. And you know what I'm seeing emerge out of my home? The beginnings of Christ followers. All eight of my children, man. Yeah, they're rough around the edges. They're a little Gentile, <laughs> a little crazy. There's some nine-headed snakes that they worship once in a while. But I watch them and I go, my 14-year-old daughter doesn't have time to care about the label in her shirt and the Nike shoes she's wearing and the boyfriend she has a crush on. She runs to the Bible in my home because she's tried everything else and it doesn't work and when she wants to kill the rest of the family and she knows she shouldn't, it's only Jesus that stops her. And I go, man, it's the beginnings of a true Christ follower. And all eight of my children are showing signs. The little bit of emergence out of the valley of discipleship that's saying, Renaud, what you prayed for, what you dreamed for, is slowly becoming a reality. So keep plodding along because they will not be called Christians because of some great breakthrough moment in your family's story. They will be called Christians, Christ followers, because every single day you fight for their hearts despite the fact that they fight back. So, Be encouraged, those of you that live the boring life right now. You're right where you need to be if you are pouring yourself in to a bunch of Gentiles that know Jesus but don't follow him yet. Or maybe don't even know him but need to. That's mission, baby. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you for this story. Just personally for myself because This week, God, coming back off that retreat, it's pretty overwhelming just to kind of go, oh my gosh, there's so much to be done here. So much to be done here, and it's so tedious and so crazy and day-to-day and backwards and upside down. And then you just brought this story to me and said, Renaud, you're right where you need to be, man. This is mission. This is mission. 
God, I want to thank you for that because I needed that this week. Just to be reminded that most of mission is long years of tedious discipleship with a few exciting moments. So, when we're tired and weary in the valley of discipleship, God, I pray that you would rise up in us, those of us on mission in that valley, and remind us that it is in this valley that Christ followers were first born. And show us, God, show us what it looks like to persevere so that we can see the beauty of the gospel, birth, redeemed Christ followers in our homes, in our church, and in those we've been given the privilege to shepherd over. Make it so, Jesus, we pray. Amen.